it's very bad to have mistaken beliefs about these sorts of things. And I think that's just not so on the negative side, but also on the positive side. Of course, Seneca has the line that you should never give into adversity, but also never trust prosperity. That, and that communicates, I think, the same thing, that so much is subject to chance and that one shouldn't get carried away with either negative or overly positive value judgments. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Trombley and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. If you search Silicon Valley and Stoicism, you get articles like The Revival of Stoicism from Vice, Why is Silicon Valley so obsessed with the virtue of suffering from the New York Times, and Silicon Valley Stoicism. What's up with that? Well, I've been in Silicon Valley for the last five years. I'm in San Francisco right now. So it seems fitting to have an episode on that topic. And that is what this conversation is. Michael and I talk about how big Stoicism actually is in Silicon Valley, how it helps build startups, and also the criticism many people have of Silicon Valley Stoicism. Here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoa. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And I'm Michael Trombley. And today we're going to be talking about Silicon Valley and Stoicism. There are, I think, a number of different elements to this question. You know, why is Stoicism so big in Silicon Valley? What in Stoicism is useful to people here? And then finally, there's some element of criticism that people always give to the way Stoicism is implemented in Silicon Valley, which is where I'm at. So I'm in the Bay Area right now. So I suppose I'll largely be structuring this conversation. We can go over those three topics and Michael will add in his two cents, objections, <laughs> and questions as we go along. Yeah, sometimes one cent, sometimes three cent. I'll do my best, but this is definitely your wheelhouse, Caleb. I'm interested to hear your perspective because I know there's kind of this, you know, I'm on the... I'm in Canada. I'm far away from Silicon Valley. So I know there's this stereotype of this reputation of this mixing of the kind of tech scene and stoicism, but you're right in that, both in the tech scene and, and in the stoicism scene. So you're a great voice to hear from on this and interested in your takes on this phenomenon. Yeah. So we'll start with the demographics then, which is, you know, why is stoicism so big in Silicon Valley? And there are a few different elements to that. One is, of course, the question, how big is it actually in Silicon Valley? See a bunch of different articles, whether it's on the New York Times or some other venue, which say that it is, but is it true? And then the second aspect to that is, of course, like why, what explains how big it is. So on the first part, you know, how big is stoicism in Silicon Valley? I would certainly say that in the States, more people know about stoicism than probably nearly anywhere else. That's probably correct. I think, you know, just personally on the anecdotal side, if I go to some large event with 10 people or so, it's very likely that even half of those people have heard about stoicism. If I go to a larger event with 25 people, 50, it's a decent odds that I'll find someone who is into stoicism has actually read, whether it's one of the popular books or the meditations by Marcus Aurelius, decently likely I'll find someone who 
is actually quite into stoicism and finds it valuable either as a practical philosophy or perhaps even as a life philosophy and would identify themselves as a stoic. And you see some of this come out in less anecdotal measures. So if you look at what are the books that founders give testimonials to or that VCs recommend, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius is very high up on that list. The book by Bill Irvine, The Guide to a Good Life, is well-reviewed and also people will read it and one a number of VCs get positive testimonials to that book, recommend it, and so on. That is unique to Silicon Valley. One other additional bit of evidence here is that many of the prestigious people, thought leaders, if you will, know what Stoicism is and in some case actively promote it. So of course, there's a fellow named Tim Ferriss who mm-hmm. promotes Stoicism. He put out a translation of Seneca's letters and works closely with Ryan Holiday. And Ryan Holiday is probably the foremost person in the world promoting Stoicism, the most well-known Stoic, as it were. He's, a lot of people know who, who Ryan Holiday is here. But even if we go to other people who are perhaps well known, more well-known for their business activities, investors like Naval Ravikant or Mark Andreessen are familiar with Stoicism and think some of the practices are excellent and actively promote them. So that's, I think, the positive case for the idea that Stoicism is in fact big in Silicon Valley. But of course, lots of things are big in Silicon Valley. So <laughs> there's a, it's a whole different, a mix of different cultures. You have hippie culture, hacker culture, sort of liberal progressivism is very big. But of course, there's also a streak of libertarianism. Um, and then even although probably not as big as Stoicism, different forms of you know, techno-optimism, Ayn Randian-type philosophy. So it's a whole a large mixing pot, and Stoicism is up there. It's probably in the, you know, if I would say, the second tier of most well-known life philosophies. And typically, people will have heard of it, and they'll have started implementing some of the practices, or they will have heard of it, and they would be familiar with some of the ideas yeah, I mean, so. that, that all makes sense to me. I think w- what I'm interested in then is kind of what form it takes because, you know, you can do this litmus test of popularity that's like how many people have heard of it or how famous are the people who champion it. But there's a lot of different kinds of stoicism. So I'm curious, you know, when you talk about ha- hacker culture, hippie culture, tech culture, what culture has it infiltrated? And what does it look like in that culture itself? Is it looking like philosophy as a way of life? Or is it looking like something else? I guess those are my two questions. Yeah. So I would say that there are not communities, active communities of Stoics in the Bay Area. At least I'm, I think there, I should say there, are, it's not something like Buddhism where you see different you know, Western Buddhist organizations and their physical places where people meet and practice Buddhism, a number of places like that in the Bay Area. Stoicism's not quite like that, and it is more of an individual practice. And I think it is more seen on a practical level. So you have phrases like, the obstacle is the way, and people hear this and they'll immediately think, oh yes, one of the teachings of Stoicism is <laughs> that you know the impediment to action advances 
action. What stands in their way becomes the way. And they have this sort of practical heuristic. And that's generally the level of knowledge that I think people would interact with when it comes to stoicism. So sometimes people accuse the view as stoicism as a set of life hacks. There's something to that criticism. But the application of stoicism, I would say, is deeper than that, but not as deep as taking it on as a life philosophy. And what in your sense, I guess, is the attraction? What is the kind of combination of factors that has led to this? Is it this case like someone like Tim Ferriss, who's a major source of influence, puts it out there and then it kind of gets picked up? Or is there something unique going on in this kind of ecosystem that's lending itself to taking this up, taking up stoicism? I, yeah, I think there's an, a real ideology context fit, if you will. Yeah. So at the, you know, you could sort of think of people ingesting stoicism in three different levels. You just overhear a technique, a stoic technique, negative visualization, and then you add that technique to your list of tricks. That's sort of the life hack approach to the philosophy. And then there's one level deeper, which is stoicism becomes something that's practically and psychologically relevant to your life. It's not just a bag of tricks, but shapes your perspective in the same way like mindfulness might shape your perspective as you know you have this ideal of mindfulness and that matters practically and psychologically. And then finally, there's the last level, which is the a philosophy reaches the level of a life philosophy and it provides an account of what it is to live a good life. And it would be sort of like someone moving beyond mindfulness to a version of Buddhism. And I think a lot of people are, it, they find it useful, of course, at the very first level as a set of heuristics, life hacks. But then at that second level, Tim Ferriss has this line that stoicism is an operating system for high stress environments. And I think that gets at what a lot of people find valuable in Stoicism in this world, so people are focused on being excellent as individuals and doing hard things. You know, building a company is not easy. You know, there's a famous one-liner that Elon Musk said about starting a company, you know, it's just like chewing glass all over and over again. It's often lonely, you fail a lot. And you will be worshipped for some amount of time if you're successful, and then eventually you'll be scapegoated. And you know, there's a it's a whole roller coaster ride in the best case. So, and stoicism isn't just this, but I think that you know everyone realizes that stoicism is especially useful for managing personal tragedy, whether it's the loss of a family member, loss of a job. It's an excellent philosophy for bouncing back. And I think for similar reasons, it's a good philosophy for managing even like voluntarily chosen hardships, which a lot of people are in, in the project of doing here. So and there's a whole list of, I think, both techniques and general psychological attributes that stoicism might promote on the second level reading that makes it a good fit, makes the ideology, the ideology context fit. I think I just had a bit of an aha moment because... We just did this, we just did an episode on sports, right? And so Tim Ferriss is saying, you know, stoicism is this operating system for high stress environments, which I agree with. And I think that's, there's also this kind of natural fit in sport. And sport is another area where if I start talking about stoicism, 
maybe people haven't read Marcus Aurelius, although a lot of them have. But if I explain a concept, they'll be like, oh, I already thought that way. Or you kind of put into words something I was already thinking. People are kind of naturally discovering the operating systems that allow them to navigate high stress environments when they find themselves in high stress environments. But then my mind was thinking, well, there's lots of high stress environments. I mean, I suppose there's this other appeal in military, you hear that too, mm -hmm. but why this specific appeal in Silicon Valley, if it's just a business environment, right? Why isn't stoicism huge on Wall Street? And my thought, and I guess, I guess push back against this, my thought just now was that, well, you're also adding this moral dimension. So sport is a high stress environment where you're trying to become a great person. Military is a high stress environment where you're trying to preserve justice, right? You're trying to, you know, whether or not you're doing that, but you believe it in the fight you're fighting, right? And defending the country you're defending. And then perhaps it's the case in Silicon Valley that these people aren't just trying to come up with a profit, but there's this kind of techno optimism, this kind of idea of we can change the world, we can save the world, we can do great things. And so that high stress, but also that conception of morality gets built in there. What do you think about that? I just thought that. So happy for your take. Yeah, I think there's something to that. There's an essay by a fellow named Paul Graham, which is about what's the one sentence city communicates hmm. to you. And I think it came out about a decade ago. And he said, you know, cities like Boston, it's got Harvard, MIT there. Its message is be smart. Somewhere like Los Angeles, the home of Hollywood, it's a single sentence is be beautiful. That's the message the city conveys. That's the values it if you had to condense it into a single sentence, uh, it would be all about. New York is be rich. And then for Silicon Valley, it's something like be powerful, not in the political sense, but have an impact. And I think when a lot of people are starting a company, they're trying to do something, which of course is a paradigmatic vision of someone in Silicon Valley. They're trying to not just be rich, but do something that shapes the way that people interact with the world and solve, you know, solve problems, build a brand new technology, what have you. And that does have this sort of normative dimension to it, which makes the project be more about being rich, includes ideas of some constraints on like what it is for a project company to be successful. And I think comes with some ideas of excellence and also I would say uncertainty that stoicism can help manage if you are doing you know nearly everyone who does a startup has some option a safer route in the sense sure. that there's somewhere there's some position they could take where they would get a pretty solid income that they're foregoing for the chance at a much larger impact even if like maybe the expected value calculus is, you know, there's some amount of uncertainty there, whether you'll ultimately be successful. And I think stoicism is a useful philosophy for that because it can remind someone who's in that situation to focus on what they can control, do as best as they can, and manage you know, stresses as they arrive and keep on plowing forward. Yeah, that makes sense to me. This idea that people in the startup culture kind of it's not just a high stress environment, but it's a high, it's a high risk environment. And in some ways it's a voluntary high risk environment was what I was taking from that. They're opting into that. And so you have to have some kind of sense of the value of taking risks, both the resiliency to take those risks and the idea that, you know, 
risks are worth taking, you know, values found through hardship and difficulty or wagering things or the chance of doing something better. I mean, I think all that ethos is quite inspiring. In practice, do you find stoicism? I want to get to that, that, that part two, which is this idea of how stoicism in practice is helpful for people founding companies. I'm curious if you find it pays off, if you find people that preach this philosophy or preach stoicism are more successful in business or what you find the relationship between business and stoicism to be. Yeah, I'd say there are a number of traits stoicism can help one cultivate or techniques it has that can improve one's success. And even if they're not called or improve one's chance of success, and even if they're not called stoicism or stoic traits here, they a number of them have sort of seeped into the culture. So just to list a few of those, in Stoicism, you have this idea of premeditatio malorum, negative visualization. They're picturing the, some of the worst outcomes. And I think there's now a set of standard business practices around doing what's sometimes called a pre-mortem analysis <laughs> that has entered both Silicon Valley practice and then some other practices as well, where you involve ask questions like, if this project failed, what would the world look like? What would best explain that? And I think just like it does in personal practice that can help someone plan better, plan for avoiding that failure, but also be more psychologically prepared for when something goes awry. So that's one example. Another example is in Stoicism, you have this idea that it's important to see the world objectively as it is, and not add these unnecessary value judgments, whether they are positive or negative. So there's the line in from Epictetus where he's talking to a student and a student says, you know, is tempted to say, you know, someone went to jail and he was harmed. And Epictetus says, no, all you need to say is that this person went to jail. That's it. That's all that happened. That additional bit and they were harmed is added by you. That comes from you. And this that brings out this idea that one should be seeing reality as it is, which is, of course, advantage, advantageous in business. You, know, you don't want to be delusional about your accounting, your hypothesis about how well your product fits in your market, and so on. At some level, I don't think it's very bad to have mistaken beliefs about these sorts of things. And I think that's just not so on the negative side, but also on the positive side. Of course, Seneca has the line that you should never give into adversity, but also never trust prosperity. That, and that communicates, I think, the same thing, that so much is subject to chance and that one shouldn't get carried away with either negative or overly positive value judgments. Yeah, so I mean, I remember talking to Julie Galef, um, and so she's, for those that don't know, she's an author, also a, a public thinker who talks about, her book is called The Scout Mindset. It's this contrast between the warrior mindset and the scout mindset. The warrior mindset being this idea that you adopt perspectives that you feel will help be advantageous to you in the short term. So, you know, think of the of a boxer who thinks I'm the best in the world. No one can beat me before they get in a ring. Whether or not it's true or not is not the point. The boxer adopts that perspective because it's helpful. The scout mindset is the one where you would you try to see the world as it is, as you were just saying, the kind of stoic perspective. The stoic is definitely the scout mindset. 
And the argument of her book is that we don't do enough scout mindset, that it's actually really advantageous. But ironically, Caleb, one of the points she brings up is this. A lot of times people that think of the scout mindset as being harmful, or you think of this for when people need to adopt the warrior mindset, is in the sense of like obscenely confident founders, right? Like this idea that if that person was honest about their chance of winning or the chance of succeeding, they would have never started the company. They would have taken the more secure option. So there, people often think in these kind of contexts, there's a value to not seeing the world as it is. And, you know, I think of someone like Elon Musk, who like, for better or worse, you know, I don't think, I think in some ways, his mind does not always see things the way they are. And I think that's there. There's major benefits to that. And there's major harms to that. How do you reconcile that kind of picture with what you were just saying about the, the fit between the tech world and stoicism? Yeah, there, so I think Julia Galef has this argument that what often matters is a sense of self-confidence and that can be teased apart from one's judgments. So I certainly agree that many successful founders, people in Silicon Valley are confident in their ability and they have a high degree of what one might call self-belief. And is that delusional? In some cases it is, and it's tied to Ooh. beliefs that are just completely wild. And there are some high profile cases of people being short-term successful, but not being, things turning out not so well for them. At the same time, I think there are people who are extremely self-confident, but update their beliefs over time. Elon Musk is an interesting example because he seems like he has a, both a mix of, he's always exceptionally self-confident, but will also admit that a number of his projects have a high probability of failure. Indeed, they're more, more likely than not to fail. So he has that, you know, those are some indications that objective judgment really matters to what he's doing. At the same time, he's notoriously bad at predicting timelines mm -hmm. for his projects. So it's a complicated, it is a complicated issue. And there's always of how someone actually sees the world versus what they'll say to get some outcome. Arguably setting a timeline for a company might be more of a, if you wanted to paint it in a positive light, more of a matter of a noble lie. If you wanted to paint it in a more negative light, you could cast it as a scam depending on your, <laughs> you know, depending on your disposition. But one can separate out what you're internal or external marketing is with one's actual view it is always an important thing to do. And then there are questions about whether, how closely those should align and questions of ethics, of course. But I would say that the key takeaway, both from Galef and my, some of my personal experience is that many, there is a separation between self-confidence and objective judgment, having self-confidence and some level of delusion and some level of competence can be short-term profitable, but the delusion will eventually catch up with people and weed them out of the startup evolution, if you will, the startup environment. Yeah. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. Yeah, that makes sense. So going over the two you mentioned, you listed the, you know, the premeditation of evils. Then you listed seeing things as they really were. 
these are, I would say, are both kind of like epistemological traits of Stoicism. You know, the premeditation of evil is, you know, you attempt to see things as they really are because you attempt to actualize and visualize things that could happen so that you're not surprised by them or not caught emotionally unprepared. And then seeing things as you are is just this attempt to value truth over other values that might get in the way and obscure truth. Are there any benefits that Stoicism has for the tech world or Silicon Valley that aren't these kind of, I don't know, epistemological or scientific or truth strategies? Yeah, of course, there's the dichotomy of control. The idea of one should always focus on what is under one's control and that range of things is much narrower than one might initially believe. So that's a focus on decisions and thoughts, focus on processes over outcomes. This is can be applied both as you talked about before, both at the practical level and also an ethical level of taking absolute responsibility for the decisions you make and not seeing especially a very common failure mode for people trying to either advance in their career or start a company is to not taking up responsibility for for things that happen. I think people who are <laughs> exceptionally competent will, if they're running a company at some level, try to take responsibility for everything that happens. And in a stoic, the stoic way to do this, I think, is to be very vigilant about the outcomes of your decisions and very vigilant about how your decisions, thoughts can impact everything and not say ever leave, leaving as little as possible to, to fortune as is possible, which of course you'll never be able to prevent any bad happening from occurring and there'll be a bunch of new information always coming in. But that disposition of trying to take responsibility as much as possible, I think in a way is a, an ethical outcome of applying the dichotomy of control because you're not really responsible for what others do and you can't transfer your responsibility to them in, in many cases. You know, if you want to start a company, well, your employees are going to behave a particular way and that's just part of the, part of the world you're in and you can complain about that or you can do your best to change it and make a successful company would be one way, one way to put it. I mean, when you mentioned that, I mean, I just re I just think that that's something that I was guilty of when I was younger. It's probably still guilty of now. It's not taking responsibility and not taking responsibility for what's in my control, especially when it comes to this kind of professional success and not taking accountability for one's failures, right? Like not that either. So it's very, I think of the attribution bias. I think that's what it's called. It's a psychological principle that you're way more likely to attribute successes to choices, failures to external circumstances in yourself with yourself and then with other people, you're way more likely to attribute their failures to their choices and less likely to attribute them to external circumstances. And I think that I'm really, I've been guilty of that in the past that I've seen that in myself. It's been this constant work for me, which again, as you point out, it is in a sense, it has this professional upside, but it is in a sense, just the, the correct application of the dichotomy of control is just taking responsibility for the impacts my choices have had on my success, professional success. And uh, the negatives that it's had on my professional success and also taking responsibility for that. And then, as you said, also more, more, there's kind of a moral aspect that comes when you train that muscle in terms of judging other people, in terms of 
being more forgiving of other people or holding people to kind of higher account in the moments when they need to be held to account. That was my thought on that. Just that it really resonated. I think, you know, most listeners too have done that quite a bit. Yeah, I think that's certainly a natural tendency that I noticed uh, to myself, especially when one might be involved in a disagreement with someone, when it might have the, (laughs) the immediate reaction is to try win the disagreement or if things aren't going well to to blame the results on the person you are disagreeing with. And of course, there are issues one needs to be careful with here. You know, perhaps you sh- it would be better for the business if you, this person who you had a very serious disagreement with is let go or something like that. But often things aren't as extreme as that. And these sorts of disagreements are distractions and blaming them. You're really in a sneaky way transferring responsibility mm-hmm. away from yourself. Yeah, you had a fourth one you wanted to raise? Yeah, this idea is related to the epistemic principle of seeing things as they are, but also is has a normative dimension to it. And we see it in the practice of the view from above, which is seeing things from they are from a particular perspective. If you step outside of yourself and look down on yourself from above, you know, you're just one animal among trillions in a small rock floating through space, right? And from that perspective, you see things as ephemeral, as much smaller than they, in fact, might appear up close. And the normative dimension to this is that it's a technique, a perspective on the world where what doesn't matter can fall away and what does matter becomes more salient. So this idea, of course, not sweating the small stuff would be the cliche, but useful way to put it is an important one, especially when at some point, wherever you are in your career and your life, there'll just be so much going on that it's exceptionally important to not get caught up in what doesn't matter and to be vigilant about applying one's attention, one's time to what what does matter. So that's the this is the last idea I wanted to mention, which is seeing things as they are, of course, is an important epistemic idea. But part one way to do that is to move to this perspective where you pay attention to what matters, where it's easier to pay attention to what ultimately matters. And of course in the business case it might be some important detail that's exceptionally, you know, that has a lot of impact for your business. But of course, not just in the business case, but in the general uh, case of life, it's important to always never lose sight of the things that matter to you. And that's, I think that's something that many people in Silicon Valley try to do. You have this, certainly you have the cliche of don't sweat the small stuff. And do people do that more than they do in other places? I'm not sure. But as a cultural idea, it's certainly around. Yeah, and it's a, it's important to note that, you know, because for the Stoics, virtue is knowledge, every Stoic trick at the end of the day, or every Stoic idea at the end of the day is going to be an epistemological one. It's going to be about thinking the right way. But as you said, some of them are more tightly linked with views of what it means to live a good life or views of what matters, not just kind of, because you could kind of say, you could do, as you say, like a pre-mortem just on like financials. You could say, try to see things as they are just on financials. But things like the dichotomy of control that gets used, things like the view from above, that incorporates a bit of a perspective on what is, I think, ethically important 
what is morally important, what's important for living a good life, even if the answer ends mm-hmm. up being a bit different than what the Stoics might say. Because, these, because you know, not everybody wants to be 100% a Stoic, but you're still by using these exercises, I think, engaging in an ethical exercise, not just a thinking exercise. I would agree with. Did we want to get into any of the criticism? Did you have any kind of concerns about the way that this might manifest in Silicon Valley? Yeah, so there, I would say there are two kinds of criticism. One is that Stoicism is misinterpreted in its use of Stoicism, and that's bad. The second is the idea that Stoicism is actually interpreted correctly in Silicon Valley, and that's also bad. So it's, probably, it's worth briefly touching on both of these. The idea that Stoicism is misinterpreted is just the idea that Stoicism becomes this list of life hacks, a list of tricks that people can use as input for what's ultimately a material-oriented project of becoming rich or a status-oriented project of trying to build a prestigious and impressive reputation by building a business. I think that would be the way to put it. So, you know, of course, if you want to be great in this sort of popular sense, be a famous person who is thought well of, then you will face obstacles and having stoic <laughs> attitude will often be an effective way to deal with these attitudes. But the relevant thing that matters here is not the techniques or even the second level of stoicism, which you know I try to talk about. It's a little bit deeper than techniques, but this idea that stoicism as a practical operating system, well, you know, it's still the question of is your life aimed at the right thing? Is this key project of trying to be great really a good one? You know, there's certainly something to that criticism is, but is Silicon Valley worse than other places? Yeah. It's not, you know, not so obvious to me. Like on the margin, stoicism seems pretty good, but you know, we have stoicism here, a little, maybe a little bit less in New York. Is there a worse problem in the Silicon Valley than here? I'm not so sure on the margin, even the life hack version of stoicism may be, maybe a good thing to have as people use these techniques, find they're useful. And then a lot of people will go deeper into, into the philosophy. So I think that's, you know, you always want to say that there's, of course, something correct to that criticism, but I don't think it should be overplayed too much as too much of a, too much of a concern. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just, to me, one of these things is like, it would be preferable if people didn't do that. It would be preferable if people didn't engage in anything of value shallowly in a shallow manner and we're able to dig deeper into it. But not everybody has the time. And especially as you were saying, if people are just treating it in a shallow way more often, just because more people know about it, that's not really a harm because more people know about it also means that more people will be engaging with it in a deeper way. And then as you said, you know, is it even a harm? I think there can be kind of this like elitism or exclusionary nature in some people that are into stoicism or into philosophy or into anything, you know, if you're into cars, if you're into working out, if you're into video games, and there's always a hipster, you know, component to that. And, you know, just not everybody's going to be as into everything as you are. And it's like, it's okay. You know, I think it's okay if someone, um, if someone has spent a little bit of time engaging with stoicism and has taken a little bit away from that, I think that's good. I think what we want to avoid is it being taught incorrectly such that somebody spends a lot of time investing in stoicism and then walks away with very little. I think that's the harm, but I don't think that, I don't think there's really evidence that that's happening more often in Silicon Valley than other places, as you said. 
Right. Hi, everyone. This is Michael Trombley. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. We're a new podcast. We're getting started. We're building episode by episode. So I wanted to just give a quick shout out and say that any like, review, or referral that you can provide really goes a long way to helping the show. Thanks again for listening. Right. right. So I think one way to make this criticism crisp is there's an article came out probably about three years or so on stoicism in Silicon Valley and it talks about Ryan Holiday as the point person and made the claim that Ryan Holiday was essentially performing brand management for the elite and this is a criticism that there's a form of stoicism that gets weaponized as an elite ideology that is individualistic in a certain way that causes you know all these venture capitalists I mentioned earlier to speak well of it. It helps them improve, helps them be better at their business. Maybe even in some senses helps them be better people, but overlooks the questions or fundamental questions about you know what is the role of a successful founder or venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, and there is. I think that criticism is a is also quite it's also quite common, and is um, yeah. I'm curious what you think about that sort of thing before I pontificate on it. I mean, I think this is I think this is a common kind of intermediate. I think this is like an intermediate mistake in stoicism that you see all the time, which is, you, one of the big takeaways from this episode for me has been this like three level approach, right? Which is you begin in life hacks. Then it becomes part of like a, then stoicism becomes like a way of integrating with your values, your way of thinking. And then it becomes on stage three, like a lived life philosophy. And I think when you're coming down the tunnel and you're on stage one and you're on stage two, it can seem very self-serving. And in many ways it is very self-serving, but I don't think, and we can make an episode about this if people are interested. I don't think stoicism is individualistic in a way that it would recommend anybody to be harmful or selfish. I think a virtuous person in the Stoic picture is a good person in almost any... In terms of Stoicism being brand management for the elite, yeah, I could absolutely see that happening in turning in turning success, you know, incomprehensible success too, right? Like I remember seeing this visual depiction of how much Jeff Bezos, how much money Jeff Bezos has or his net worth, right? And like the mind can't even conceive a hundred billion or what he's at. Like it's not even... And viewing the journey of these people as, and, you know, kudos to Jeff Bezos, right? Like, I'm sure he's a brilliant guy who's worked really hard and there's like, there, there is a degree of meritocracy in place, but to perceive this person's obligation as just this kind of like self-actualization journey towards being better and better at this thing, rather than at some point the scale tips, you know, whether that's at 50 million or 5 billion or 50 billion, at some point the scale tips and that self-actualization journey has to become one of helping others or one of recognizing the importance you have in the community now, being as inside as strong of a position as you are. And that's my thought off the top. And I can see how stoicism can, you know, when misapplied or misunderstood, be a great vehicle for sidestepping those kind of conversations about social responsibility or sidestepping the conversations about the role, you know, the incredibly rich and successful have to play in the community. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I would say, and I was talking about this with Massimo Piliucci not so long ago, that Stoicism has 
important things to say about politics and how to act well in politics. And we've talked about this a little as well on our episode of Epicureanism. We contrasted different approaches that ancient Stoics and the Epicureans had, for example. But there's still quite a lot of disagreements over within the Stoic camp what, say, the right role of the elites is at the cultural and political level in society. And even in ancient Rome, of course, you have mm-hmm. at the late Republic, you have people like Cato the Younger essentially fighting to the death to the Republic from failing. And then you have Stoic advisors to the new emperor, Octavian. You know, So there's a case to be said that Stoicism does not have a fully developed political philosophy, and that's an exceptionally good benefit because it makes it a large tent. Many people can mm-hmm. be Stoics without managing, you know, without going immediately to political disagreements. But I think there is this case that, you know, is someone doing brand management for an, a moral elite? Well, that claim, you know, depends on what the right role of an elite is in society. And I don't think the Stoics have really answered what that is explicitly. Like, maybe you think otherwise, but I think with my own personal interaction with many Stoics and what I've read from modern Stoics, there's certain there's certainly leanings about how an elite should act, and there's certainly some very clear lines drawn. But really, like I think this kind of judgment hasn't been explicitly determined within the Stoic community and may never be. So I suppose that's a uncertain way to end. But I think all that's to say is I think this criticism is more of a question in a way that mm-hmm. I think Stoics should grapple with. I just think uh, the ancient Stoics, they thought about politics different than we did, right? Like, like we don't have an answer there. I don't know. I don't think we have an answer in Plato either. I don't think there's an answer in Aristotle, although I'm not super well-versed in Aristotle's political philosophy. We just, the ancients just wrote about political questions differently than the way we do today. So yeah, and there, but there's nothing wrong with it being a question. I don't think we should pretend like we, we know the answer and I think we should have dialogue about it. Um, but I guess it's a question worth asking and I wouldn't want stoicism. I wouldn't want stoicism to come off. Like you can't ask the question. I do think it's on the table. Although I agree with you that I don't think there's a necessarily an obvious answer to it, at least not reading the ancient stoics, but yeah, an open-ended conclusion. Yeah. So I think one way to end sort of connect with where we're at is, all right. So you have this model of, I think the criticism that Stoicism is for people who are just trying to get ahead, trying to be essentially successful elites. We've said some things about why that might be misguided, but why there are questions there, and also why Stoicism would provide useful for someone who wanted to be in that position. But there, there is a concrete person who deserves mention here is Susan Rigetti. She used to work at Uber. She has a number of reading guides on philosophy and physics and is well known for being one of the whistleblowers for cultural issues, ethical issues at Uber. And I think she's important to mention because, of course, she was in Silicon Valley and thinks very well of the Stoics, but does not fit this uh, stereotype. So I think if that's a useful place to end as someone who has a number of 
admirable things, has an exceptionally good reading list on philosophy that you should check out. And I think mentioning her should, I think, make one's picture of Stoicism's role in the Valley a little bit clearer. Yeah, great example. Thanks, Caleb. Super fun. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com, and please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.